and welcome to Deep North. My name is Eric Pomeranke, and we're here today in the studio with Iceland Review staff writer Jelena Cirich. We are going to be revisiting her 2022 piece, Unearthed, a look at the archaeological excavations at Otti. After the death of Thorlokur Thorhatson, Bishop of Skalholt, in 1193, Stories of miracles that occurred in his diocese were collected as part of efforts to canonize him. The first of three volumes containing such accounts describes 46 occurrences, including a blind sheep gaining sight, a lost ship that was found, and a man saved from drowning, all thanks to Thorlokur's holiness and God's omnipotence. The 33rd story tells of a bull that escaped certain death at Otti, a prominent chieftain seat in South Iceland. When a cave at the Otte farmstead collapsed on 12 bulls, crushing 11 of them instantly, it spared the 12th, although trapped under several meters of rock. After a long day of digging, the bull was freed, walking off completely unharmed. The account is the oldest mention of a man-made cave in Iceland. More than 800 years later, that bull drew archaeologist Krisborg Thorstotir to Otte. She was curious about the story of the so-called bull cave and wanted to see if she could find it. What she uncovered was another miracle of sorts, the oldest man-made cave in Iceland that remains fully intact. Like most Icelandic place names, the word Otte is a straightforward geographical description. It means a spit of land, a point or tip, in this case, the one formed where the Etri and Estri Ranka rivers meet. We arrive there on a warm, overcast afternoon in late spring. Buttercups dot the grass around the red-roofed church, snipes dive in the air above. The dig lies a little further down the road, where a helmet-clad Krisborg welcomes us and walks us up onto a hillock to look over the site. As Icelandic landscapes go, it's hardly impressive gently rolling green hills, and flat farmland as far as the eye can see. But archaeologists are endowed with X-ray vision. Krisborg points out a crevice in the ground below, grown over with grass. This is a cave that collapsed very early, where you see this trench, she tells us. Underneath that heap, there's the entrance to a cave system. In a trench we dug through, we found the remains of a very large man-made turf structure. There are more caves over there toward the church. Most of the hillocks here have been dug into to some extent. There was not only one cave at Otti, but a labyrinth of underground structures, some connected by tunnels, others with turf walls or foyers added onto them. Otti wasn't the only site in Iceland where early settlers dug and utilized caves. It's known that there are caves all over South Iceland, Krisbuk tells us. There's good stone for digging, sandstone and pelagonite, and it's quite soft and it was known that there were caves here at Otti, but I never expected to find one that was still intact, especially not such a big one. Krisborg first came to Otti in 2009 to map sites of archaeological interest. We went around the whole property and registered all of the known spots, including the indications of these caves, she says. In 2018, she had the opportunity to do some test excavation at the site, and she knew just where to start. There was a very prominent drop here in the hill that indicated some sort of opening that led into the cave system, she says. We did two test excavations here, and that's how we found the mouth of this cave. We only reached the very top part. It was chock full of earth. Even so, 
the team was able to date the cave they had discovered to the first half of the 10th century, only a few decades after Iceland's permanent settlement began and nearly 300 years prior to the Bull Cave story. At the mouth of the cave, now fully dug out, Krisburg shows us how ash from volcanic eruptions has deposited streaks running through the soil, leaving a sort of millennial calendar. This is the settlement layer, she tells us, pointing to a thin stripe running through the earthen wall along the cave's entrance. And a little above here, that's the Katla eruption from 920 AD. Then above that, there's a turf wall that contains ash from these eruptions. So we can see that these layers of tephra had fallen here before this was built. We used that to date these structures. The walls of the cave entrance also reveal the markings of the tools used to dig it. We can see the shovel marks everywhere, Krisburg says. We don't know exactly what tools they used, but they would have had some sort of sharp edge. Shovels or axes, probably. And it would have been easy to dig because the rock is very soft. Digging the caves may not have taken much brawn, but it certainly took brains. The people constructing them would have had to know something about the different layers of earth, how to maintain course as they're digging, where to connect the caves at the right height, and all of that, Krisburg says. I find that to be an incredible amount of engineering knowledge for the early 10th century. Even more remarkably, the regions from which most of Iceland settlers came, or through which they passed, don't appear to have been sources of this knowledge. There was no cave digging in Scandinavia, Krisburg explains. They don't have the right type of rock there. There are some man-made caves in the British Isles, but not at all this kind of construction. So you wonder, is this knowledge that people can just acquire? Were they just more multi-talented than people are today? Or is it knowledge that they bring with them from somewhere else? As they proceed with their research, the excavation team is trying to determine the order in which the caves and surrounding structures were built, which raises even more questions that Krisburg finds fascinating. How did they make these caves? she asks. Why is there a turf wall in here? Was it all planned before they started? Or did they just decide as they went along? Okay, let's add a cave here. While the oldest man-made cave in Iceland is a treasure in itself, its interior has provided Krisburg's team with even more material to research. There are a lot of organic remnants, hay, animal bones, and wood, she says. It's very rare to find those sorts of things in archaeological digs in Iceland, and it's quite uncommon to find wood from this period that is still intact. The organic matter was preserved so well because the cave remained closed that entire time. No oxygen could penetrate, and the surrounding soil stayed relatively moist. The temperature also remains a steady 5 degrees Celsius, 41 degrees Fahrenheit. When the remnants are analyzed this winter, experts will know more, where the wood came from, the age and health of the animals, and what sort of plants they were fed. Identifying insect species could give clues as to which kinds of animals were kept in this particular cave in the early 10th century. What was and wasn't found inside the cave indicates what it was likely used for, keeping animals. There's a lot of hay and some animal bones, but we found no man-made objects, Krisburg says. There are no indications that people inhabited the space. But she adds that it's possible other caves in the system had other uses. What I want to know is if some of the caves closer to the farmstead were used as pantries, Krisburg wonders. Otti was the home of chieftains in later centuries, and all of the farmers within a large radius had to pay taxes to them, in the form of cheese, among other things. All of that food would have had to be stored somewhere, and caves are, of course, great fridges. They're dark and cold, 
and the temperature is very consistent. Caves at other farmsteads in South Iceland were indeed used as pantries, even into the 20th century. At the farm Ayusida, near Hetla, one such cave pantry was even directly connected to the farm, a true luxury at the time. We don't know if that was the case here at Otti, Kristbrook says, but we haven't ruled it out. The intact cave is an especially remarkable find because the caves at Otti usually collapsed, one after another. There's something about the sandstone here between the Ronkal rivers, Krisborg explains. It seems there wasn't enough tephra mixed with the sand when these hills were formed, so this sedimentary rock is not very well cemented. There were many caves here, but not many of them seem to have been preserved. Man-made caves at other sites, such as Ayusida, seem to have remained in usable condition over much longer periods. Such caves were often renovated over time, making it difficult for archaeologists to determine their original form. But here we have a structure that was made very early and was used for a short time, Krisburg explains, so it's a sort of prototype. We can see how they were constructing these caves early on. While the caves at Otti were not used for as long as others in the region, Iceland's cave-making tradition continued into the 20th century. People had been digging and using caves here throughout that whole period, though probably with breaks, Krisburg says. And there's still a lot that we don't know about this tradition. For example, why some of these caves fell out of use. At Otti, the reason could be that they simply weren't lasting long enough. But what about in other parts of the south? Was it some sort of natural disaster or the Black Death, which is cited as a catalyst for many changes in Iceland? Krisburg asks. The population shrinks, the caves close up, and are forgotten. There's a lot that has yet to be researched. The funding that enabled Krisborg to dig at Otti came from the LCMI fund, RIM in Icelandic, a special initiative intended to strengthen research at sites where Iceland's medieval literary culture flourished. Otti's most famous inhabitant is from this period, Sæmundur Fróði Sigfússon, or Sæmundur the Wise. He was one of the first Icelanders to study in mainland Europe, returning to Otti around 1057, where he served as its priest and wrote the first history of the Norwegian kings. We know a lot about Sæmundur Frode and the chieftains who lived here in the 11th century and later, Krisbjörg explains. That was the period the LCMI fund wanted to focus on. But then the remains we found were unexpectedly much older, which is a fascinating discovery that there was a lot of activity here very early on, a great big structure to house animals, which means that there was extensive animal farming here. That, of course, laid the foundation for the chieftain's power later on. We knew that people of different classes came to Iceland and appropriated areas of varying size, but we hadn't found anything of this scale from this time period. Other research at the site has also confirmed that there was human activity at Otti from the very beginning of settlement. The sources say that the land was first bought and settled early in the 10th century. But now we've confirmed that there was some sort of human activity at Otti from the beginning of settlement, Krisburg says. Next to the church, there's a small hill with a lookout. A test drill showed it probably contains a cave just as old as the one they've uncovered from the early 10th century. It would take years to excavate all of the caves surrounding Otti and a lot more funding. But for Krisburg, the discoveries at Otti show that even a little funding can go a long way. When we talk about investing in roads or buildings, we talk in tens or hundreds of millions. But when it comes to funding research, then people start to hesitate, even though we're talking about only a fraction of that money, Krisburg says. 
and they're even ready to build on top of these sites without having researched what's underneath them. This excavation has shown that even with a small injection of funds, really amazing things can happen. The Deket Oti has become a source of unprecedented scientific knowledge, but it is also something more, a very visceral link to Iceland's settlers, some of the first people who made their home here 1,000 years ago. To be able to enter the same structure that they walked in and out of a millennium later, stand where they stood as they dug into the rock, and still today see the individual markings left by each strike of their shovels, feels quite miraculous. I'm sure that Bishop Thorlokud would agree. Well, thank you for sharing that piece today, Elena. My pleasure. So for those of us who haven't been on an archaeological dig, uh, maybe you can just quickly walk us through what it's like. Uh, yeah, I think it was very, I, I felt very privileged. It felt very special to be there because, you know, they were still in the process of excavating and kind of finding things at the site. And, and it wasn't a place that was open to the public and it wasn't, you know, a formal sort of site like a museum. So uh, it felt very special to be there in the moment. Uh, certain things, uh, I feel like you really need to have an expert kind of point out to you. So to me, that was super interesting. Whereas, you know, I would look at what to me was a hole in the ground and then, you know, Chris <laughs> Burke would, would point and say, look here, that's the settlement layer. And look at this, that's a, that's a piece of hay from, you know, a thousand years ago and so on. And, and these are things that, you know, the average person who doesn't have archeological training can't necessarily recognize. So it's kind of amazing to stand there with somebody who can kind of point things out to you and, and suddenly you you see things in front of you that kind of they're opening up a, a sort of new world for you uh, that you didn't see before. But one of the things that I was able to sort of see and that were that was really remarkable for me was these markings from actually digging into the cave where you could see the point of an axe or a shovel and you see the angle of it along the wall of the entrance to the cave and and it's just so easy to picture a person actually standing there and mm, you know yeah. carving the wall and yeah. and just thinking that somebody was doing that a, a thousand years ago and now i can see uh, the the mark the literal mark that they left on the earth you know maybe the only thing left to them um and you know you can just stand in their footsteps basically as they were carving this wall uh, that would that to me was really really cool yeah, you know, it just kind of makes you think how, you know, I mean, in general, uh, in history, written accounts were generally written about the more powerful classes, like the moneyed classes, the ruling class. And so history is always going to have a certain bent in who it talks about and who it kind of considers um, to be its subject. Um and that's the really cool and special thing about archaeology is like you kind of get this insight into just the daily life of, you know, I mean, maybe in the case of Oti, it's not totally the average person because this was also a relatively wealthy farmstead and the home of Simon de Frothy. So, you know, it's still kind of a special place. But yeah, this look into a normal person's daily life is really unique. Absolutely. And, you know, um, just seeing the actual remains of animals, there were some dog bones in there, uh, so it would be interesting to know what species that was and whether that could tell us something, you know, as well as uh, I think either horse or, or cattle remains, just mm. some sort of 
bigger livestock kind of remains and seeing these huge bones that are a thousand years old still intact uh, pieces of wood you know um, they're things that can tell us so much about the people and the animals and just the environment um, that and what it was like to to live here in Iceland a thousand years ago more than a thousand years ago mm. and to this day uh, this region of Iceland in the south uh, is still one of Iceland's richest agricultural areas. And it was precisely this feature that also made this region uh, so important historically too. Uh, there were uh, like the largest farms in Iceland were in this region. And so this is like a really big saga region. Um, this area is also kind of considered to be like Njalsaga country, uh, mm -hmm. like a lot of the most famous characters uh, from Njalsaga, which for those who don't know, it's uh, certainly the longest uh, family saga uh, in, in Icelandic and generally considered to be kind of the most historically and culturally significant one. Um, and so like a lot of the characters and their families had their homes in this region. And a lot of that was because this was such a kind of rich agricultural area. Um, so you talked about this thing that's called the settlement layer. Uh, that might sound like a kind of boring archaeological detail, but it's actually quite important. Um, can you just remind us what that was? No, I can't. You're <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, yeah, you're I mean, definitely much more qualified to, to do that. Well, so uh, there was this eruption, uh, and it basically coincides more or less with Icelandic settlement, right? And so there's just this very fine ash layer, and you know, like we know with pretty good certainty that like anything underneath this ash layer has to necessarily have been before what we generally consider to be the traditional date of Icelandic settlement, which is usually given as 871, 874, plus or minus a couple of years. It can actually uh, differ a little bit uh, based on different accounts. Um, but so we know with pretty good certainty when Iceland should have been settled uh, according to the historical record uh, and the Icelandic sagas, which are semi-historical. Um, but there have been some pretty interesting developments in that as well lately, too. Um, and there's this uh, pretty significant dig out east at Stöð. Uh, what can you tell us about that real quick? Yeah, so uh, at least according to the best data that we have, it does seem like uh, the late 9th century was the time when Iceland was permanently settled, but that doesn't mean that people didn't visit Iceland earlier and have temporary settlements. Mm. Uh, and Stöð, actually, the, the archaeological site in East Iceland, uh, has been making some remarkable finds in recent years. Um, the, the excavation has been going on for many summers now at that site, and uh, the first thing that was discovered was a Viking-era longhouse, maybe not a super remarkable find at first, but once that whole longhouse was excavated, what archaeologists found underneath it was another longhouse from an earlier period, which actually was before settlement. Mm. And that site appears like it was uh, a temporary settlement where people came largely from Europe to kind of extract resources in Iceland. And what the kind of prevailing theory is of what that site was used for is to hunt for walrus, which at the time was a very valuable resource. Walrus tusks were very sought after by kind of the noble class in Europe, 
Um, they were considered valuable. Walrus hides uh, were used for many purposes, uh, and walrus blubber as well, of course. So it was a resource that was so valuable it made sense to travel really long distances um, to extract it. And many listeners might might realize or be thinking at this moment, well, there are no walruses in Iceland. <laughs> and that's true, there are none today. Uh, but there were uh, about a thousand years ago. Uh, there was actually an Icelandic subspecies of walrus that lived on the island and around the island. Um, and it actually became extinct shortly after permanent settlement. So mm. we can make a pretty clear conclusion that uh, humans were actually what drove these walruses to extinction. Um, another thing that I find super interesting about this site, I think there's so many things really, but there have been artifacts, like all sorts of artifacts found at the site, um, all sorts of kind of valuable ones from the Viking era, but also from this previous era that predates settlement. They found, for example, carvings and tools that indicate that there were possibly Sami craftsmen here. Mm. So that means that the settlement was probably more multicultural as well than, than we would have assumed. And it very much challenges this idea that the first settlers of Iceland or the first people that kind of came here even temporarily were sort of noble, uh, sort of noble exiles from, from the, the Norse kind of cultural area. Um, so I think it's just so interesting when we kind of uncover the things that these sites have to tell us and, and they challenge the knowledge that we already have. Yeah, it's maybe just worth uh, underlining how much that does actually undermine the very traditional and accepted account of Icelandic settlement. And, you know, in general, uh, each Icelandic family saga will kind of begin with this set intro. Uh, and they all kind of basically begin in the same way. And the way that each Icelandic saga basically begins is an account of uh, King Haraldur Haurfagri, or Harold Finehair, or Fairhair, sometimes he's called, uh, in Norway, is kind of consolidating power, and uh, his rule is tyrannical. And so you have all of these, um, you know, kind of middling chieftains uh, who decide to pack up and uh, evade taxes and uh, flee to Iceland. Um, and so, you know, uh, for a very long time, this has, you know, because the sagas are semi-historical and they are actually one of the best sources for a lot of these things, um, this has basically been accepted as true, right? Um, and so there definitely was a migration wave around this time of consolidation of power in Norway. But, you know, I mean, very often the way that the sagas talk about this is, you know, Iceland was essentially unknown before. There were maybe a couple sailors that had kind of sighted land. There are a couple of these stories um, of, you know, somebody spending the winter here. Um, but it, it was really kind of taken for granted that this was completely uninhabited. And so this idea of maybe semi-permanent seasonal hunting camps and stuff like that, like it really does kind of complicate the picture of Icelandic settlement in a really interesting way. Absolutely. And, and uh, some listeners may be wondering, well, how come we're only discovering these things now? Um, I mean, as, as Chris Borg kind of points out in this article, these archaeological digs, they take a lot of funding or, you know, not as much as, you know, maybe building a new cultural center or that sort of thing, but <laughs> they require certain funding in order to happen. You know, you have to first survey an area, determine what sites are worth digging in and, 
you know, just at Otte alone, if you wanted to excavate all of these caves, all of all of this uh, region, it would take a significant amount of time, a significant amount of funding. Uh, and then there's the other reality that just weather conditions in Iceland and the composition of the soil in Iceland uh, means that there are fewer things preserved here from these eras than there are maybe in other parts of the world. There's less permafrost, for example, which would kind of fully preserve um, artifacts in other areas. Just the wet weather, the actual composition of the soil itself. Um, so having a site like Stöth with all of these all these artifacts that have been found there is actually quite rare here in Iceland. Mm. Something that I also think is really interesting is, you know, in other contexts and cultures, uh, archaeology and history and literature are very distinct disciplines. Uh, but because of the unique literary history in Iceland, uh, you do really have archaeologists kind of going to these literary sources, um, you know, not as kind of tried and true fact or something, but like they like the literature really does kind of guide the excavations here in a unique way, I think. Uh, you mentioned that uh, these projects are actually kind of focusing on areas with specific kind of literary importance, uh, literary history. And so there's just a lot of really interesting ways in which these disciplines kind of inform each other. Um, I think a really interesting example of this, uh, which is, you know, I mean, a little bit less cheerful, uh, but, you know, it kind of does uh, speak to the historical reality in medieval Iceland. And there is this uh, very old poem called Rigsvula, um, which is a part of the Eddic corpus. And there's reason to believe it's quite old, uh, kind of like reaching back, um, you know, into like the really early kind of CE period. Um, and it's this kind of account of the social classes and where they come from. And so there is this account of the god Heimdallur, and he's kind of traveling around, and he basically begets children in different households, and then these children then kind of become representatives of the different classes. Uh, so like he visits this one house, and he begets this child named Jarl, uh, and so he's kind of like a proto-aristocrat, and then he uh, visits this other house, and he begets this child, uh, and. I believe his name is literally just Bonti, so he, you know he becomes a farmer, um, and then uh, he visits his other house and he begets all these children, uh, and like they have these various names uh, and they're slaves, um, and based on the names of these slaves, though, you can actually kind of tell a lot about how early Norse settlers might have thought of this class of people. Uh, for instance, there is uh, this one slave child whose name is Fjosnir, um, and Fjos is like a barn, and so there's kind of pretty good reason to believe that this kind of person would have had to like sleep with a barn, that these people inhabited uh, living spaces with animals, you know, potentially that they were maybe even kind of thought of as more animal than human in some ways. Um, and, you know, so obviously there's a little bit of speculation that goes into this and there's a lot to be said for, you know, uh, the kind of historical interpretation and everything. But it is really interesting to me, like how in Iceland, like archaeology is never just 
looking in the dirt, right? Like we're also always reading the historical sources. We're looking at the literature, we're reading poetry and like we're kind of using all of these things together to like build up this view of what might life have looked like back then. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, what was something that really kind of surprised you in just kind of writing about some of these things? Um, I think there are just so many more questions than answers at this point. And uh, just imagining this whole kind of really labyrinth of caves underneath Oti uh, and just wondering, you know, what they were used for is, is just so interesting um, and why they were carved and how they were carved. And I think for me, knowing that this knowledge, this engineering knowledge that Crisburg describes uh, required to actually carve and, and, and dig these caves just didn't exist anywhere that we kind of associate with uh, the first settlers, not in Scandinavia, not really in the British Isles. And so that leads me to, to wonder and question, you know, as Crisburg was pointing out, did the, the people who dug these caves, did they bring this knowledge from elsewhere? Were they maybe people that came from other regions that were not aware had a direct connection with Iceland so early on? Or, as she speculated, were they people that just were able to figure things out kind of on the spot? Yeah. Yeah. In which case, I mean, I think that's just as remarkable, really, to, to sort of look at this stone and, and give it a little poke with your shovel and, and think, ah, this looks like it'd be a good place to dig a cave and let's figure out how to do that and, you know, how to connect them, how to stay level, how to maintain course, all these things that are much more complicated than, than you know, just digging a hole. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that's one of the great things about archaeology is, um, you know, I think often uh, we underestimate people in the past and, um, you know, like like maybe we look at monolithic architecture like Stonehenge or something and we just kind of think, like, how could people have possibly done this? But we have just been modern in our abilities to solve problems for hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, we... You know, I mean, um, you know, it kind of makes me think of how there are these somewhat uh, famous uh, studies where anthropologists would go to indigenous communities and like hunter gatherers and, you know, basically try to give them an IQ test. And the assumption at first was that they were scoring lower because, you know, they weren't used to thinking in the kind of categories uh, that we have. Uh, but then, you know, it turns out that. You know, obviously it's not quite as simple as that because an IQ test has a lot of assumptions about, you know, what kind of, what kinds of reasoning are useful. And I mean, of course, people have an intelligence that fits their environment and people figure the things out that they need to figure out for their life. And yeah, you know, I mean, uh, for me, uh, yeah, it just really speaks to the kind of, um, yeah, just ingenuity, right? You know, I mean, like, like of course, uh, w you know, I mean, also Iceland historically uh, had a lot of resource scarcity. Uh, they ran out of wood pretty quickly uh, after the deforestation of the island. So, you know, if you don't have kind of reliable timber to build, like, what do you do? Well, maybe you have some metal tools and you can kind of start to hollow out 
a hillside or something, you know, and right. like we always... Uh, it was necessity. Yeah. Just that was the only way or the easiest way to build structures at the time, in addition to turf, because there was, as you say, a, a lack of wood um, very early on. Yeah. Well, um, just on a kind of fun note, um, there might not be walruses in Iceland natively anymore, but we have uh, had actually several uh, important walrus sightings this summer. So. That's right. I think we've had, uh, <laughs> just in the past couple of years, we've had three or four walruses visit Iceland, um, probably a result of climate change, ultimately, that walruses are wandering further, but it may also just be a sort of migration pattern. Often, um, from what I've read, it's kind of younger uh, males that sort of will wander in, into areas that they're maybe... Uh, their their ancestors or their sort of like herds don't wander into so classic adolescent behavior <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> uh, and I think people have really enjoyed um, seeing the occasional walrus in Iceland there was one that sort of swam along with a man on his morning commute um, he was biking along along the harbor in Hapnarfjörður here in the capital area and all of a sudden there was a walrus kind of swimming along next to him so I think that's pretty. That's pretty fun. I would enjoy having a walrus accompany me on my morning commute, I think. So maybe I'll start walking closer to the harbor. Well, maybe uh, after humans established seasonal hunting camps, maybe the walruses are kind of beginning to recolonize with uh, mm. little seasonal maybe, walrus yeah. camps. That would be great. I'd love to see more <laughs> walruses here. But it bears saying that uh, they can be dangerous and you should should not approach them too closely, even if you see them here yes. in Iceland on a on a or for something like that. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to Yelena. Yeah, thank you. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.